I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Think about it. What would it take for you to leave your home, your family, your community, your country? The thought of doing that is virtually unthinkable. Conditions would have to be almost beyond belief awful. And oftentimes when the people trying to get to America, arrive here, their families are separated, the kids are caged. Uh, underlying the innumerable terrible policies of Donald Trump is a foundation of racist cruelty. The more vulnerable a person is, the more intensely is the cruelty meted out. Thousands of people have already died in the vast desert trying to escape the horrendous violence in the Central American countries whose militaristic government was often put there by American interests. The anti-immigration policy of this administration criminalizes humanitarianism. People who help out refugees with jugs of water in the desert have been arrested and charged, but luckily some American courts decided against Trump's prosecution of these humanitarian volunteers. Sure, the racism inherent in it resonates and fires up Trump's far-right base. But America is, of course, a nation of immigrants. And I, I have to believe a majority of us are not in favor of the extreme and cruel anti-immigration policy. To Trump, the issues are only about politics. But the reality is these are truly desperate human beings. What these refugees are coming for is what all our ancestors came here for. And the current immigration from Central America tests the very bounds of human ability to endure. Especially with the COVID-19 crisis, chances of successfully gaining entry are even more dim than ever. So why do they do it? Uh, how did it become the reality that for so many desperate people there is no option but North? Well, that is the title of a new book by our guest, Kelsey Freeman. The title is No Option But North, subtitle The Migrant World and the Perilous Path Across the Border. Thanks so much for being with us, Kelsey Freeman. Thanks for having me on the show, Bert. As writer and educator, Kelsey Freeman focuses on immigration policy, indigenous rights, social justice, what a concept, and public policy. She received a Fulbright Fellowship to teach English and study migration in central Mexico. She currently runs a college readiness program for Native American high school students through Central Oregon Community College. Well, thank you so much. Again, it's a remarkable endeavor to travel to a shelter in the central Mexican town of, I hope I pronounce this right, Celaya, to collect, yeah. oh yeah. good, that's nice, uh, to collect stories from immigrants. Please tell us, please, uh, uh, about the genesis of this book and why you made the endeavor to go to a shelter in Celaya in central Mexico. Yeah, well, 
I think, you know, it was astounding to me, first of all, the stories I encountered when I got there. I had learned a lot about immigration beforehand, but not to the extent of what I saw in Celaya. But what took me there was really, um, you know, this moment I had. I was traveling in South, in Southern Mexico, um, doing research for my undergraduate thesis, which focused on indigenous rights in, in Mexico. Um, and I had this conversation with a man next to me on the bus who asked me, he had been deported from the U.S., and he asked me, how is it that you can come to my country yeah. to study my people um, for two weeks while I've been repeatedly denied for a visa to go back and visit my family in your country? Wow. And that, to me, cut to the heart of the issue. Yeah. I didn't have a great answer for him at that point. But it caused me to want to go back and dig deeper into how is it that nationality and class and race yes. matters when it comes to who gets to go to the U.S. legally mm. and who has to undergo this incredibly violent journey north to make it across the border for a better chance at things. Yes, it is amazing, the, ab the, the uh, accident of our birth. How did you choose Celaya and how long were you there? I was there for nine months, wow. um, and Celaya is right along the path that many Central American migrants in particular take north. Um, Central Americans rely on what they call La Bestia, um, which is a series of freight trains, translates to the beast, um, but freight trains that migrants take north that were never meant for passengers, uh -huh. um, you know, that they risk their lives just in taking those trains. Um, but the train snaked through Celaya as well. Um, there was a, a, a big migrant community coming through every day. And so I got connected with the local shelter in Celaya. I spent my evenings there. Um, I had informal conversations at first, and then I started doing more formalized interviews. Wow. I, I don't know Mexico very well, I must say, but uh, there's so much to talk about. Uh, I hear good things about the Mexican president. We'll get there. Because the lives of virtually all the people listening to this program are relatively secure, most find it hard, if not impossible, to imagine having no option but to get up, leave your home, and migrate. What are migrants fleeing that effectively removes the element of choice from their decision. It's hard to imagine. The biggest thing that I saw, and that's certainly growing, um, which you mentioned, is violence. Um, you know, um, in the Northern Triangle, that is Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, and in many parts of Mexico, what has happened is that gangs and cartels have really taken over the essential pillars of the state to the extent that it erodes the lives of everyday citizens. So I talked to several business owners, for instance, who normally have to pay a tax to whatever cartel or gang operates in their area. So what happens if they can no longer afford to pay that tax? Well, they immediately get threatened by the gangs. Their lives are in danger. They're made to do certain favors for the gang or cartel. So they flee um, because that's, that's the only way to get away from them. Um, but still, still very present is a search for better economic opportunity. You know, when you're seeing your kids go hungry and you can make in a day in the U.S. what might take you months to earn at home, um, 
it's it's an option for financial stability. It's a way to get ahead. It's something um, many families have been doing for generations is going north. Um, and then the last thing I saw, which is very present, is um, family, trying to get back to family in the U.S. Um, I talked to many parents who had U.S. citizen children um, who were trying for their fifth or sixth time um, to cross the border and they said to me, you know, I'm going to keep trying because I'm not ever going to accept um, having my kid grow up alone in the U.S. Um, so I, I need to do what I can to get back to them. Yeah, well, that's, that's uh, you know, what you describe seems like that was true for my ancestors. You know, they, they were fleeing uh, Eastern Europe where they had uh, very violent uh, uh, governments there uh, and they came here to be with their kids. You know, it's just, I suppose, perhaps, one difference is they were white. And maybe exactly. a little different. Yeah, I mean, this, these patterns have been true for generations. Oh, it's yeah. nothing new. No. I think what has shifted, or, you know, what's, what's very present now, is that um, policies that are explicitly targeting immigrants of color to make yes. the process so cumbersome that they don't even feel like they can come here through legal avenues at all. Yeah, and I want to talk about the legal avenues. People, uh, well, we'll get there. A lot, of, a lot of questions. And you mentioned drug smuggling and the drug gangs. Yeah. This is not really, as, tell me if I'm wrong. It used to be a relatively benign black market business that allowed most Mexicans to remain largely safe and and free from its brutality, but no longer. What what has changed over the past two decades with regard to uh, drug smuggling in the formerly benign black market? Yeah, so what has happened tonight in the book, I look at this specifically in Mexico, is that cartels have evolved and sort of ballooned out into many other industries such that, like I said, they're eroding uh, the key structures of the state. So they, you know, keep local and state police in their back pocket often. They'll bribe or um, threaten politicians to kind of try and keep them on their side. They'll, um, I mentioned industry and taxing business yeah. owners. They'll... Um, you know, control journalists in a lot of ways to the extent that they can um, through threats, through trying to get them to kind of almost glorify the violence in some areas. Um, so, you know, you have cartels controlling these essential pillars of the state. And what happens then is ordinary citizens who used to be able to say, oh, that's, you know, gang violence, I don't want anything to do with that, no longer have that option. They're afraid to go out of their houses at night. They're afraid of the skyrocketing rates of kidnapping. Um, they're afraid of violence that has really taken over um, and that's really hard to avoid. So it's really this ballooning out um, of cartels from, yes, drug smuggling industries that used to just stay in that arena to now almost like shadow states in a lot of regions. Yeah, the power over the state. And uh, I know a little bit about the 2009 uh, military coup in Honduras, which had the support of Hillary Clinton, who was then Secretary of State, uh, and made things a heck of a lot worse and really uh, 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 blurred the lines between uh, the, the criminals and the government. 
a lot of this has to do with American policy, let's face it. You know, I, and, and there have been so many wars down there, El Salvador, Nicaragua, uh, Guatemala, certainly, brutal governments. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are Keeping Democracy Alive. That's the name of the show. It's a group effort, folks. We're speaking with uh, author Kelsey Freeman about her new book, No Option But North, The Migrant World and the Perilous Path Across the Border. The people you got to know who were not refugees all struggled in terms of getting by. Please tell us about what they did and why it's so hard to gain financial security in Celaya and Mexico more generally. Yeah, so for those that weren't fleeing violence or applying for political asylum, yeah, the main reason they were fleeing is because of lack of economic opportunity. Um, I think there are very few worker protections, certainly in Mexico. Um, I think in much of the Northern Triangle as well, low minimum wages. But, um, you know, most workers, especially unskilled workers, are paid far below the minimum wage anyway. Um, And then on top of that, there's just a profound lack of economic opportunity, lack of jobs that I think is almost hard to imagine, even in rural areas of this country. Um, So I, um, you know, that uh, coupled with few worker protections makes it hard for the working class. But even for the middle class, it can be really hard to survive. You know, I, I had friends that taught at several different universities um, my roommate taught, uh, you know, worked like 11 hour days, six days a week wow. as a professor and still was struggling to get by. So even, um, people with professional degrees have told me in Mexico, more education doesn't always equal better economic opportunity. So I think many people are struggling. Yeah. A lot of people are finding that out here in America too. You know, they, they, there's that myth of, uh, oh, just lift yourself up by your bootstraps. You just need more education. Surprise, it doesn't always work. And right. just just personally, you know, trying to picture being there, one can imagine the migrants kind of might be a little bit afraid of talking to strangers. It was kind of taking a big chance. What What made them feel comfortable enough to do that with you? That's a great question, Bert, and I feel like... Um Yes, it's it's a world where migrants don't know in whom they can confide, you know. Um, they don't know what information might be used against them. They don't know who um, might be actually working with cartels or, um, yeah. or, or kidnappers. Really? Um, so I feel like migrants took big risks in talking to me. Um, I think what I tried to do is create a comfortable atmosphere. Um, mm. We often... When we would get started, we would talk about politics. You know, I was there in 2016 and 2017, so before the election and then after Mm. President Trump um, won. And so there was a lot of fear, a lot of fear um, in migrants coming through, a lot of rumors circulating about what might change. So I feel like a really important role I had was sifting through those rumors to figure out what truth um, lied within them. And... And I feel like that um, created more of a um, genuine atmosphere for conversation. But really, I think what um, caused migrants to share their story is they wanted Americans to know, especially then. Uh, They wanted us to know about the impossible situations they face, uh, the choices that aren't really choices at all. 
and they wanted um, Americans, as they were hearing racist discourse come from from the president-elect and president of the U.S., they wanted Americans to know um, where their hearts were at um, and that they're human, you know, they're just struggling to, to do the best they can. Yeah, you got to make the others others and less than human. And, you know, Trump has said, oh, he'd welcome people from uh, Scandinavia, for example. But those people, uh, I, I wonder about, you know, people say, well, my ancestors came here legally. People opposed to immigration insist, oh, it's just about legality. If you come here legally, well, fine. And, but, uh, you know, my sense is somewhat through the COVID-19 virus that it, it's become a lot more uh, virtually impossible to come here uh, legally and to apply for political asylum at the borders. What, the, my sense is that options for legal entry have been greatly reduced at the border. You write that there are currently four avenues to legal entry into the U.S. What are they? Yeah, so that's very true. I think it's an easy argument to make to say, oh, well, why can't people just come here legally? But that ignores the fact that for many people, there's almost no legal avenue, viable legal avenue that exists. So there are four broad ways that people can get into the U.S. Um, One is being sponsored by family, so a direct family member that's a U.S. citizen can sponsor you. Um, An employer can sponsor you on an employment visa. But those are typically, or the vast um, majority of those are for uh, highly skilled or specialized um, skills. Um, There's political asylum, uh, which is based on the grounds that you're fleeing persecution in your home country. But that's a very strict legal definition, and over 8 out of 10 Central American and Mexican asylum seekers lose their cases. Yeah. and then there's the diversity visa lottery, which is 50,000 annual slots for countries that tend to send less migrants to the U.S., so excluding Mexico, among others. Um, but those are the main categories. Those are the, uh, you know, lines to get in, so to speak. Um, even those avenues are extremely faulty um, because of the tremendous backlogs um, we see within them. Uh, but... Um, that's what exists. So when people say, well, why can't people just come here legally? For many people, there's not a legal option. There's not a viable line to get in. Yeah, I, from pictures I've seen that uh, people are turned away, you know, they can't even begin the application process. That that seems relatively new. It seems they're cracking down more and more and more. And the whole, uh, you know, separating families and uh, caging kids, I, people in in Central America, the potential migrants must hear about that. Is that not a significant disincentive to come here? I mean, isn't that part of what Trump is trying to do? Well, that is what Trump is trying to do, is fundamentally dismantle our avenues for legal immigration, even more than they were already, you know, yeah. non-functioning. But the, what has happened, or what I've seen from migrants I spoke to, was that it doesn't necessarily... Um, deter migrants from coming here because everyone I spoke to said, I am fleeing by necessity. This is already my very last option. I don't want to be enduring the extreme violence that it takes to navigate through Mexico and across the border. 
Um, I don't want to be detained. I don't want to face all these things, but here I am. And so it doesn't deter migrants. Um, Overwhelmingly, I found that. Um, What it does is it just increases their capacity for tragedy and suffering in the process. Whoa. Yeah, I mean, it's true in that um, I think for decades the U.S. has pursued this policy of deterrence. Um, with the idea that the more complicated we make it, the more we cause people to cross in the Sonoran Desert instead of regular Uh, ports of entry, the more likely they are not to come. But evidence has shown that not to be the case. It just, you know, ups the number of deaths. Um, It ups the number of um, kidnappings. It ups the violence that people endure in the process. Now, in terms of the economy... You know, you can't go anywhere in the, well, at least the 48 contiguous states here where you don't see people hiring undocumented workers. It's long been vital to the American agricultural economy, especially, you know, in California and all the the produce. While the opportunity to hire migrants as as agricultural workers through the H-2A visa is readily available to U.S. employers, most skip that legal option. Tell us about that H-2A visa, please, and why would they skip that legal option? That's a great question, Bert, in that we do have, you know, this this, uh, agricultural worker visa, but these visas only sell an estimated 7% of U.S. farm jobs, despite the fact that at least a third of them are filled by immigrants. So, um... You know, in short, it's cumbersome, it's expensive, it's cheaper to hire undocumented immigrants for a lot of employers. Um, So with this visa, they have to go through the process of proving that no citizens want the job. They have to spend about $1,000 per worker on flights and consulate fees. Um, And then they have to provide better housing, higher wages, etc. So instead, they tap into the um, demand uh, for undocumented labor, or they tap into the um, undocumented labor market. Um, and I think we haven't realized after the Bracera program, for instance, uh, where we had, you know, a huge expansion of visas and this guest uh, worker program, um, when that was shut down, There was still the demand for immigrant labor, especially in the agricultural sector, and that continues to this day, but we didn't fill it with any kind of legal avenue to come to the U.S. That's Uh a viable option. Instead, we left it open for um, a market for undocumented labor, and that's exactly what's been filling it. Market-driven. Yes, indeed. Funny how that works. Current current immigration law, as I understand, allows a maximum of 7% of annual visas from any one country. Now, that sounds fair and reasonable and even-handed. Is it not? Yeah, so this, in my research, this is the crux of what makes it, the experience very different um, in terms of migrating, depending on what country you come from. So even before Trump, the way visa allotment worked is that, yes, no country can receive more than 7% of the annual allotment of visas um, in this kind of equal way. 
But what has happened is it's not an equitable system because you have Mexican applicants, for instance, making up over a third of worldwide applicants. So you have, you know, uh, just a huge amount of applicants from Mexico, um, over a million for family and and employment visas for just about 25,000 slots. So that creates a backlog that effectively renders family and employment visas not an option for Mexicans. So I'll give you an example of how that plays out in practice. Please. In 2019... Um, the State Department was processing visas. It was processing high-priority visas for uh, children of U.S. citizens, and those were backlogged from all countries, so they were processing most from 2011 in 2019. Oh. Um, but the applicants from Mexico for family and employment, or, sorry, for children of U.S. citizens um, were so backlogged that they were still processing visas from 1997. So Mexican applicants had to wait 22 years for their visa to even be considered, and they had to wait 14 years longer than people from most other countries. So this, and this is, again, one of the legal avenues to get to the country, but it's effectively not a viable option for Mexican citizens, um, because who can wait two decades uh, to, to migrate? Wow. Huh. I did not know that. Oh, it's important for the powers that be to keep us in the dark, I must say. <laughs> if Americans... Yeah, and, Go ahead. It, well, and again, this is before the Trump administration. Jeez. This is how it has worked for, you know, really since we got rid of the the national origin quotas in the 60s. So, um, national what you know, quota? then we think about the ways in which Trump has dismantled legal immigration further, and it becomes even more um, depressing in a lot of ways. What were you saying about some standard in the 1960s that was gotten away with, that moved away yeah, from? So, Tell us about that. So before, um, you know, long in our country, we've had a, a system of immigration policy that's favored certain nationalities over others, right? Oh, sure. And that oh. led to this system... Um, of national origin quotas, which gave an, a specific amount of visas to each country, which was largely meant to prioritize um, immigrants that were deemed white, you know, Western European immigrants. Um, so that system, um, you know, really took hold in the 1920s, and then uh, in the 1960s, it was substituted for for the seven percent system of allotment that we have now. That's kind of more equalized uh-huh. allotment system, which is good in a lot of ways, but again, doesn't take into account the demands for those visas and the ways in which certain countries will be backlogged. Uh, I'm just sitting here thinking about all the uh, the precedent for uh, uh, you know being against. The others coming in, people with hyphenated names, with you know those with bad guys in the First World War, uh, and just certain countries. Certain countries are okay, and certain countries are not. It, this is a long tradition, but you know we we're not supposed to know this. I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm frankly glad my ancestors somehow made it in here. From they were from Eastern Europe, and not a favored country for sure. But they did look white anyway. Huh. Yeah. Uh, as it is everywhere, uh, manipulating the media is essential to real power. In what ways did you see the media made an accomplice of cartel violence in Mexico? What impact does this have on the public's trust in the media? 
That's a great question, Bert. And I think in a lot of ways, cartels in Mexico want to control the media either by getting the media to glorify the violence that they commit. Yeah. Um, So, you know, there's been reporting then that um, exposes that many cartels will, you know, commit crimes right before news bulletins um, get written and go out to try and get them to... to, profile that violence as almost this like backwards recruiting strategy for <laughs> young people. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But then there's also like, um, you know, uh, certain cartels not wanting um, media to cover certain incidents or wanting um, them to, especially this becomes um, an issue often when there's kind of wars over territory uh, between different cartels. Sure. Um, so, in short, the uh, cartels of Mexico, you know, want to be able to control the information that gets out to the public. And often what that does is it keeps people in this state of fear. You uh-huh. know, that's what terrorism is about, is keeping people in this state of fear. Yes. Um, and, you know, cartels aren't the only one controlling the media in that, you know, there's been issues with with Mexican government and corrupt officials, Um you know, wanting to control the media as well. But the effect that this has is it erodes the public's trust in the information that they're getting, which is ultimately another tool to be able to, yeah, control people and keep them living in fear. Well, that's convenient, keeping people in fear. Yeah. So it is apparently a long tradition that corruption has infected and affected many of Mexico's governmental agencies. The Instituto Nacional de Magración, probably terrible pronunciation here, authorized to patrol for and arrest undocumented migrants may be one of the worst. Tell us about them. In what ways is the uh, National Institute on Migration one of the worst? Yeah, so I think here in the U.S. we often think a lot about Border Patrol, you know, U.S. Border Patrol as um, the agency that migrants are facing um, and and battling against in some instances. But um, we don't think a lot about the migration authorities patrolling for Central American migrants in Mexico. So that's the Instituto Nacional de Migración. That's the um, INM, uh, as it's known. Uh, sure which is the agency that controls immigration in Mexico. So they have officers um, working in incredibly isolated corners of the state. But the issue with this agency is that it's a very diffuse agency with limited oversight over officers. Um, There's, you know, relatively low salaries, not Mm. a lot of training for officers, ineffective sanctions for abuses. Um, not a lot of avenues to report abuses or report corruption, a lot of, like, lateral moving um, for, you know, those who have been uh, um, or allegedly have committed abuses. So what that does is you have these officers working in really remote regions of Mexico patrolling for Central American migrants who almost feel like they can get away with whatever they want. No one's watching. There's not really sanctions. Um, So the reports of abuses from Mexican um, migration officers, those stories came through the shelter very frequently um, of this officer robbed me, this officer threatened me, this officer beat me, um, this officer sexually abused me, unfortunately. You know, these these stories are really real. 
Um, so it's just another layer of that violence that that um, particularly Central American migrants are facing in their journey through Mexico. On top of the ways in which cartels now target migrants, random criminals target migrants, there's even security guards for for the trains, um, La Bestia, that, that migrants mm-hmm. take that also target migrants. So, so you have all these um, characters, if you will, mm. um, taking advantage of people's vulnerabilities. Mm. Boy, you paint quite a picture. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Kelsey Freeman, who was in uh, the town of Celaya in Mexico. And uh, her new book is No Option But North, The Migrant World and the Perilous Path Across the Border. I'm just trying to imagine being there, talking to these people, hearing their stories. I mean, it must have been an interesting process for them to feel comfortable enough to tell you the stories, but I'm guessing that once the stories start, it was like a waterfall just coming down because they knew you could be trusted. And hearing those stories, I just, and getting to know these people, you know, they're not numbers, they're people you spoke with. And yeah. the, uh, I, I just can't imagine, well, telling the story here, so for the greater uh, good is a good thing to get the word out. Um, and we, when we consider how bad it would have to be for any of us to flee our homes, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, as well as many Mexican states, are often classified as the most dangerous regions in the world. Yet, more than 8 out of 10 migrants seeking asylum from those locales are today denied safe haven in the U.S. I mean, isn't that what safe haven is all about? You know, asylum for, you know, people who have lost family members to political and drug violence. Aren't we supposed to be a safe haven for them? What's going on there today? Why is it that uh, eight out of 10 who are seeking safe haven are denied it? How, how you know, how do that's they justify that? Yeah, that's a great question, Bert, because we are supposed to be, you know, this, this safe haven yes. for, um, for people fleeing persecution from across the world. But the problem is that asylum, like I said, is a very strict legal definition. So you have to Uh. be fleeing persecution um, that was perpetrated based on your race, your nationality, your religion, political opinion, or your membership in a particular social group. So it's sometimes that last grounds, that membership in a particular social group that lawyers try to argue that um, gang violence fits into. But it's not clear-cut, you know, when you're targeted by gang violence, your life may be threatened. You may be very clear in that you will die if you go back to your home country. But it's hard to prove that you're being persecuted because of, um, you know, one of these protected classes, if you will. Um, And that is, again, before the Trump administration. And that those 8 out of 10 that get denied are those who make it to immigration court and actually, in, or sorry, to asylum court and actually file their cases. But what has happened under the Trump administration is the systematic dismantling of our asylum system even further. So now um, under migrant protection protocols, as it's officially called, or remain in Mexico, migrants um, coming from the southern border have to wait in Mexico while their cases right, go right. through the asylum courts, which takes years. 
Um, and of course, that's uh, even made even worse right now because you have thousands of people along border cities in Mexico in these refugee camps oh, yeah. that are just so vulnerable to COVID-19 um, and lack sanitation to begin with, never mind with a global pandemic. Mm. Yeah, we. if you've seen pictures of it, you know what she's talking about. Now, Mexico's new president, I've, I've heard basically good things about Lopez Obrador. He appears to be a relatively good and decent man. Where, where is he on the migrant issue? And there's all this, you know, bureaucratic structure that you described as being like really easily corruptible. Uh, tell us about Lopez Obrador. That's a great question. And so, yeah, Mexico's new president who took office at the beginning of um, this year, Lopez Obrador, um, really campaigned on human rights, on more of a systemic approach to rooting out corruption, on protecting um, the rights of migrants as they pass through Mexico. But unfortunately, what has happened, I think we saw that play out at the beginning, um, in that, uh, you know, for for caravans, for instance, um, the the Mexican administration did backtrack fast-track um, one-year humanitarian visas for people to legally pass through Mexico. Uh-huh. But then, um, or sorry, uh, January of last year is when he took office. I, I almost lost track of what year we're in. Um, but <laughs> so, so unfortunately, what then happened is under tremendous pressure from the Trump administration, who threatened tariffs on Mexico if they didn't clamp down on immigration, Lopez Obrador kind of switched his tune a little bit. Um, He then uh, deployed Mexico's newly created National Guard to the Mexican-Guatemalan border to really clamp down on immigration. And so things have really switched, you know, from this uh, more humanitarian approach to uh, what we've seen over over the past decade, really, from Mexico, which is more of a clamping down on Central American migrants under pressure from the U.S. administration. So that is has just been made worse by Trump um, and his, his threat of tariffs. Well, his, Trump's predecessor, Mr. Obama, was, I'd certainly prefer him in a lot of ways, uh, decent anyway. But how, what, was, what was his policy there? How different was it? I, I can't help but think that it wasn't great either. Yeah, so I think, you know, the Obama administration did have an approach of working with Mexico to try and get them to clamp down on Central American migration as well. I think Mm. in a lot of ways it's more politically convenient to have less people arriving at the U.S. southern border um, in general. So that was the Obama administration's approach as well. They implemented Uh um, something called... Uh, plan Frontura Sur, um, plan southern, southern border plan, roughly, um, which was working with the previous Mexican administration to, again, clamp down on Central American immigration. So not via the National Guard, not to quite such extremes, but it was a priority of the Obama administration and of uh, Peña Nieto, the previous Mexican oh, president's right. administration as well. I did not remember his name for some strange reason. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, my ancestors, as they say, the old story goes, and it's largely true, came here 
basically penniless. Uh, you know, they, they didn't have great skills that I guess the, the new, you know, State Department policy is, you know, if you have great skills, you're a specialist doctor or something, sure, we'll let you in. But there's a strong American myth still that even the poorest can make it here. Tell us about the public charge exclusion, which allows the State Department to deny such immigrants this chance. What, what does that mean? And is its basis true? something that not a lot of Americans know about. So the public charge exclusion has existed for decades, and it basically allows, um, you know, consular officers or those processing visas um, to bar anyone who is likely to be deemed or become a public charge, that is, rely on public assistance um, for the majority of their um, income from receiving Mm. legal status. But the problem is that's not a formulaic process. It applies both to visa applicants and those that are already in the country trying to gain legal status. Um, But, you know, how do you determine that someone might rely on public assistance? There's a lot of gray area there. There's not a lot of oversight over consular officers that are making this decision. Mm. So it effectively allows us to bar poor immigrants from coming to the U.S. on the faulty premise premise that, okay, if you're poor in your home country, you'll continue to be so in the U.S. It really contradicts the values Mm. of the American dream, um, you know, as as we're told it. Um, But, of course, as with many things with immigration, this has gained um, a new level of ferocity under the Trump administration. So Trump has changed the definition of public charge from those who might rely on public assistance to anyone, for those in the country, anyone who has received any kind of public benefits. And so that might include, you know, or or in the immigrant community, there's a lot of fear that does that include, you know, my kids who are U.S. citizens and get free and reduced lunch, you know. Does it include, Uh. yeah, those (laughs) the the food stamps we get for my U.S. citizen kids? And so there's a lot of fear around that. There's a lot of fear of, is this going to prevent me from gaining legal status? And especially with COVID-19, there's a lot of fear in the immigrant community about whether, you know, getting care for COVID-19 falls under the public charge and is going to prevent someone from receiving legal status. Now, the Trump administration has clarified that you can get care without it affecting your public charge, but... This, my, in my experience, the immigrant community does not trust the Trump administration, understandably so. Yeah, really. Yeah, and there's there's also a lot of confusion there, um, and so it's it's um, another way to instill fear yes. in our immigrant communities in the U.S. Fear, as we know, is one of the most powerful political weapons. Fear of the other. So many Trump's base. You know, they, it's fear of the others, the darker skinned people coming here and taking our jobs. Not true, yeah. not true, yeah. but fear, fear is effective. Um, so what about the drug cartels in Mexico? I know we touched on them earlier. Why, why did cartels like the Zetas begin kidnapping migrants? That's sort of new, is it not? Why did they do yeah, that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question as well, Bert, because... Um, it's almost counterintuitive. Um, I think this is also an issue not a lot of people know about, um, but there has been this 
the surge in kidnappings across the board for Central American migrants um, passing through Mexico, but it's often at the hands of cartels. And the Zetas, one of the most powerful cartels in Mexico, has been particularly bad um, with kidnapping mass m- numbers of migrants. Um, and I say it's counterintuitive because we're like, why would you, you know, kidnap migrants who are some of the poorest people living yeah, really? north? I know. Um, but it's because of their vulnerability. It's because the Zetas can, ki- you know, kidnap 200 people, um, migrants heading north, with police looking the other way, um, with, again, in these remote regions often. They hold them in houses for ransom, um, torture them often. Uh, sexual abuse, again, is rampant. Um, until... Uh, migrant family in the U.S. pay a ransom. Um, so this uh. is why uh, migrants heading north are often fearful about sharing that they have family in the U.S. because they're afraid of being kidnapped because of that. Wow. They, they don't yeah. lack in creativity as ways to yeah. make money. That is amazing. So yeah, it's really tragic. Yeah, it really is. How has the American reaction to the spread of the deadly coronavirus affected what were already stiff barriers? Yeah. Um, well, there are so many ways in which in which it has. Um, but at bottom, it hasn't changed the fundamental needs for people to head north. So people have asked me, well, is migration still happening? Are people still heading north? And the answer is yes, because, again, it's by necessity. It's the last option. Um, but a couple of key ways in which the coronavirus has really changed this, I mentioned um, for those waiting along the border um, in refugee camps, they're left very exposed to this virus um, in you know, <laughs> refugee camps with poor sanitation um, and no no uh, ways of social distancing by any means. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, for um, our immigrant communities that are here, well, first of all, for those that are trying to get through, um, you know, through our legal immigration system, we shut down visa processing, we shut down the processing of green cards we've added to that backlog that already exists. We're keeping people in limbo who, again, are often fleeing by necessity, um, which I think, you know, is I, I talk to a lot of people who say that's understandable. We're trying to keep people out. Um, we don't want to spread this virus. But the issue is the U.S. is still the epicenter of the virus, yeah. you know, we still have 100,000 people that have died at this point. You know, we've hit, we are, we are not um, going down. And so this idea of keeping people out because they're going to spread the virus is, is kind of absurd because the virus is already here and it's already spreading. <laughs> um, I think that, again, it's just used as a guise to be able to justify Trump's extreme immigration policies. Mm-hmm. Um and so, yeah, I think mainly what we're seeing is so many people in limbo because of this, um, where their situations haven't changed, the forces driving them out haven't changed, but the, right. the um, again, capacity for suffering in the process has. Well, we asked in the beginning, you know, what would be so bad to make you leave your home? Well, it would have to be awfully bad to make you stay, huh? You know the the COVID and the and the 
it seems like that's the picture that Trump is trying to, to give, that we make it so bad here, you might as well just stay in an area where you're going to be killed, you're going to be murdered, whatever. And it, it just, it's amazing to me, the the, uh, the cr- policy of cruelty, an actual yes. policy of cruelty. And dissension centers along the border have long been criticized for cramped, unsanitary, cruel spaces since the spread of COVID. COVID, I should say, migrants have begun hunger strikes to protest those conditions that are putting them at increased risk of contacting the virus. Tell us about what's going on there. Yeah, so then for immigrants in the U.S., there's so much happening. Um, Detention centers are a whole other area that are so vulnerable to this virus just sweeping through, and we've already seen reports of for the testing that has been done in detention centers, 60% 60% of those people, of those tests coming back positive. Mm. Um, and that's that's huge. So, again, there, there has been very limited testing done. Um, so we don't really have an accurate picture of how bad this virus has, has swept through detention centers. But if we just think about the ways that detention centers are set up, they were already criticized for lack of soap and lack of sanitation sure. before this hit. And then you have people in tight quarters, without, um, you know, PPE and any kind of protection, um, and without fundamental uh, freedom and an ability to have control over their own lives. So again, these are not prisoners, you know, they're detained in the process of trying to make a better lives for themselves, yet they find themselves housed in these detention centers that are already inhumane, but now take on a whole new level um, due to the fact that you could lose your life, yeah. you know, especially for those with underlying medical conditions, to not have, I think about that a lot, what is that like to not have say over your own protection um, and to be exposed in this jail when you're not a criminal? Yep. yep. In this jail when you're not a criminal. That's really certainly what it sounds like. Uh, and since virtually... Every migrant, I imagine, that you met with uh, knows the racism and hate of Trump toward them. Uh, how did, how did, you're an American. How, how were you treated? Did they, you know, I, I wonder if they could separate, ooh, Americans voted for Trump from you, Kelsey. Well, that is the thing that I was so surprised about and so grateful for, is people were so kind to me, you know, and mm. people did have that ability to separate out what's coming from my government and what's coming from me and to be yes. able to hold both realities. I saw that across the board in Mexico. I was never treated unkind, despite the fact that my, you know, president is calling everybody from Mexico, you know, gang members yeah. and rapists. Yeah. Um, but no one ever assumed that I held that view. People ask me about politics a lot. Mm. But they allowed me to um, express myself and express my own version of what it means to be American. And I felt like that was a very important role I could fill. Um, And unfortunately, that often doesn't happen in the U.S. We often don't allow our immigrants to... to, to hold a different reality than their governments, right? We clump um, yes. Muslims together with terrorists, right? Ugh. We can, we stereotype in these really awful ways where we don't realize that, um, you know, our citizens, our immigrants in this country often have a very 
different idea than their governments back home. That's where they're fleeing in the first place often. So um, I think being able to hold that for here in the U.S., um, like people did in Mexico, is really important. And certainly during America's war in Vietnam, the Vietnamese people amazed me. And people around the world knew that, no, not all Americans supported that policy, that there's the government, <coughs> excuse me, but then there's Americans. And, and I, I really appreciate that. How has Trump's yeah. rise changed how Latinos in general perceive the U.S., or has it? Well, I think, you know, for people in Mexico, at least it has, you know, um, especially for those, and this is where I saw it, who were thinking about coming to the U.S., um, not by necessity, but uh, through exchange or travel uh -huh. or um, work. I talked to many people who no longer wanted to come to the U.S. They were looking at going to Canada for exchange programs. In particular, I talked to this student of mine that had um, been working for years to be able to study in an English-speaking country. Uh-huh. And she was about to do so, but she said, if they place me in the U.S. as opposed to Canada, I'm going to turn down the scholarship because I am afraid of being uh, a victim of a hate sure. crime in the U.S. I'm afraid of being Mexican in the U.S. Right. And that is a really valid fear. But it's tragic to me in so many ways because I think of what's lost in that. I think of what happens when we espouse hatred to the world and espouse stereotypes. Um through our national discourse and what that does is it shuts down so many avenues for cross-cultural exchange, so many avenues to really, um, I think, live out the, the true ideas of what it means to be American. Yes, it's really a question of what America is about. It really is underlying so much of this stuff. Well, yes. and... and Clearly, there's been uh, uh, voter organizing in, you know, the uh, the southern states, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, places like that to get people uh, who are citizens who can legally register to vote to register to vote so we can make some real changes. And of course, Trump is very much against uh, voters actually voting. So in addition to ousting Trump at the ballot box, what, what can U.S. citizens be doing to change the narrative around immigration and to create a more humane policy? Obviously, getting Trump out is number one. But what about the other stuff? Yes, I agree that's number one. Um, I think beyond that, there's so much we can be doing. In terms of the narrative, I think we can be having more conversations with people who say, well, you know, reasonable people who say, well, I get I get this, but why can't people come here legally? I think we can remind people that there's literally no line to get in. I think we can continue to shift our narrative from describing immigrants as criminal or illegal. Yeah. I think we can um, think about how to get involved in our own communities, uh, you know, and think about our immigration, our immigrant communities wherever we live. Um, what organizations exist um, to serve them. I know right now there's a big community effort in my community um, organizing mutual aid for undocumented, uh -huh. our undocumented communities. Um, so that is so important right now in COVID-19. Um, I think in terms of policy, uh, it's so important to continue to speak out against things like the Migrant Protection Protocols, Remain in Mexico, um, speak out against these, you know, 
uh, ICE expansions and ICE attacks, um, be there for our immigrant communities. Um, you know, there's kind of informal networks often to, to, for allies to support in those instances. Um, and I think continuing to support organizations that try and shut down um, Trump's immigration efforts in the courts, so yes. like ACLU, among others, oh, yeah. um, because that's really where so much of this battle is being fought right now, is in the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, ultimately, we got to get um, Trump out of office so that we can shift to a system of immigration where our legal immigration system, for instance, is is dramatically expanded, where there's actually viable avenues to get to the U.S. We can address the backlog. We can address, um, you know, the people that are fleeing for their lives but may not fit into the definition of political asylum. Mm. Um, we can recognize that our agricultural industry re- relies on immigrant labor and, you know, provide an avenue for that. Um, and we, we can hopefully shift from this ethos of trying to deter migrants via security measures under the idea that, that they won't come to recognizing that they are coming, they are coming by necessity, yes. and continuing to allow legal avenues for that to happen. And if conditions were to change in their countries and governments and uh, juntas that we often put in there if that would have changed maybe they'd have less of a reason to come here so many different options so much we can do locally with local ice agents and so many things we can do the book here is no option but north uh is the the migrant world and the perilous path across the border i've had the pleasure of speaking with kelsey freeman today thank you so much for being with us and uh, helping to shed light in this uh dark expansive area Thank you. Thank you for, for having these conversations and having me on the show.